Buddhist teachings or teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, is essentially concerned with responding to the experience of our life, to understanding the experience of our life in such a way that we are able to release ourselves from the sense of struggle or conflict with our life, from the sense of somehow being out of step or out of sync with what is true or real. And in this we are invited and we have here been engaged in a process of examining, of looking at, of seeing into our experience in order to be able to understand it. To understand the way things are is very much the endeavour that is at the heart of insight meditation practice. When we understand the way things are, we are able to live in accord with, with life. When we do not, we find ourselves constantly banging up against it, conflicting with it, and not quite sure why. As if with our eyes closed we would run about in a room full of furniture and keep bashing into things, wondering why does this happen to me? So the essential issue or problem that is recognized in Buddha Dharma is a problem of not seeing. Avidya, to not see, sometimes referred to as ignorance. So that's a little pejorative, it sounds like it's kind of our fault if we're ignorant. So I think blindness is a more useful term, that we simply don't see. And when we do see, the mark of seeing, which is wisdom, the mark of seeing is that, or the mark of wisdom is that it actually releases us from suffering. And this is why we're interested in it. So, what is it that we see? How do we comprehend our world? Well, one of the things that we have to reflect on a little bit when we begin to consider this question is how strongly and how quickly we form views and opinions or conceptions of what is really happening and how we do so often on the basis of a less than careful or steady examination. We see how much our mind flickers from one experience to another, from one thing to another, from one moment to another and how each experience, if we don't actually really pay attention to it, we don't necessarily see it clearly but often we react to it without having seen it. We haven't actually rested our attention. So in practice we look more clearly. And yet we have this tendency to very quickly believe we've already seen, we've understood, we know what is in front of our eyes and to start to respond to that. Some years ago I had a experience that for me shed some light on this. I was uh, meditating at home in the morning. It was actually, when I think of it now, a February morning, a rather cold one as I recall, a frosty morning. 
And at the end of the period of sitting, I open my eyes. And there on the windowsill, perhaps five or six feet, two meters, in front of me, was a snail, sitting on the windowsill. My eyes are lit upon the snail, it's rather beautiful, sort of brown spiral shell. And I just thought, seeing it, I wonder how it got in. Then I realized very clearly, very quickly, it got in because I'd left the window open, even though it was the middle of winter, I'd had to paint or the window had been sticking and I'd shaved a little bit of of um, the window down so it would close and I'd repainted it and then I left it open so it would dry. Thought, oh, that's how the snail got in. This, you know, happened quite quickly. The mind moved. And I thought, well, why did the snail come? And I thought, oh, it's probably really cold out there. Snails probably can't live out there in winter. You don't see snails in winter, do you? <laughs> so um, that's why it's come in. And I thought, so it's come in because it's cold out there, but there's nothing for it to eat in here. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, oh no, what's the, what are we going to do? The snail, it's going to starve in here, it's going to freeze out there, you know, we've got a problem. And all the while I was just sitting there, I just opened my eyes, it was just there, and I could see it, it that, that translucent shell and the soft, moist body and those little beady sort of eyes on spikes wiggling around as it was moving. And I, and I was just feeling this deep concern for the snail, I thought, what am I going to do? Then I remembered my neighbour's greenhouse. I thought, you know, it's only one snail. My neighbour won't mind too much. I wasn't going to tell them. But I felt so good. I felt so good. I thought, I've solved this problem. So I got up from my cushion and reached towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. Curled up in a little spiral with two little bits on top. <laughs> and that moment was actually quite powerful for me. It's like this moment, an illusion, and a whole story, and a whole problem that had been there, this little being I'd felt for its life. I'd understood its sort of dilemma. I'd even solved its problem. <laughs> and it never existed. Except in my mind. Except in that taking of an appearance and interpreting it too quickly as something which it actually was not. So here we learn to rest our attention more fully, more deeply. From the moment I first saw the snail, I probably wasn't really looking at what was there. I was looking at my idea of a snail in my mind rather than actually the experience. We rest the attention more fully, more deeply in order to begin to see through our first impression. And Usually, of course, it's not something quite so uh, blatantly um, sort of incorrect as that in terms of the actual seeing something that's one thing and thinking it's another. But in terms of the nature of what we're looking at, it is that stark. What we actually can find ourselves doing when we look at experience. The Buddha spoke again and again. One of his fundamental teachings was that there are three major misperceptions that we make. That when we don't see how we make these misperceptions, we tend to grasp onto experience. We tend to cling. We tend to attach ourselves to experience. And in that process of clinging, of attaching, which takes the form of either grasping hold of or pushing away, which we've talked about, there we get entangled in suffering. There we get entangled with our life. And so these 
three particular misperceptions are of interest to us. The first misperception is the tendency we have to see that which is changing as being permanent. How we look at and relate to things which are changing and we relate to them as though they are continuous or fixed or permanent. And this occurs to us so many times in so many ways. We're sitting in meditation, we think, oh, I can't be bothered. You know, I'm a bit tired right now, or, you know, I'd rather just sort of have a daydream. And often in the back, behind that, is an assumption that I'll get to do this later as well. We assume the situation will continue. That if this was the last sitting we were ever going to have in our life, we probably would make a bit of an effort in that moment rather than thinking, oh, I'll just have a nap right now. I've been, you know, trying pretty hard most of the retreat. I can give myself a break, you know. Meditation holiday. But if it was the really last thing that was going to happen, we wouldn't do that. It's like we've got an idea, this will go on. Or the moment, of course, our meditation starts to be going well, we start to settle in, we think, ah, okay, I'm arriving. Rather than staying with that experience, we start to think, okay, I'm getting somewhere. This is good. Wow, okay. And immediately we start to imagine ourselves as a great meditator. We just start to see the sort of the posture, the nobility. The, we think about shaving our head and going to the monastery, or sort of all the people will be able to sort of help with our newfound skills. And of course, we discover ourselves thinking about all this, and it, you know, we realise we're no longer present at all. But in that, the seed in that is a sense of continuity. Likewise, the struggle with a moment of difficulty. It's not the moment itself we struggle with. Because it's here, it's like this, maybe it's not comfortable. It's the sense of continuity that we impute to it. That my knee is still going to be hurting, you know, later on today. Or for the whole of the sitting. And we can probably see many other ways in which we have this assumption of continuity. How shocked we are when something ends that we liked or loved or cared for. How shocked and surprised we are. Like something in us, although at one level we know things come to an end, we all see it. Something in us doesn't quite let ourselves believe it or relate from that understanding. When we come in contact with something we find pleasant or sweet, we, we, we lead ourselves to believe that this could be forever. And yet it can't. So when it comes to an end, we struggle with that. And again, it's this misperception of permanence, continuity. And it leads to us struggling with difficult experiences because we fear they will be forever. But it's not possible. Nothing is forever. And equally, we try and grasp hold of the pleasant because we believe by doing so we can make it permanent. But we can't. And again, it's that misunderstanding of permanence or misbelieving in permanence that is underlying a significant degree of that grasping or resistance to experience. How does this happen? How do we find this occurring? It's like a metaphor I find or an image I find quite useful to illustrate how this occurs for us. It's a little bit like... um. If you imagine yourself driving along a road, a long straight road, um, maybe a motorway, 
you're in a car driving. Actually, best if you're a passenger. This isn't such a good idea if you're the driver. But um, if you look out the front window, what do you see far ahead in the distance? Yeah. Whatever it is. If you look straight ahead, long into the distance, it doesn't really seem to be changing. It's just a pretty static image. Likewise, if you look in the rear mirror or look over your shoulder and look out the back window on a long straight, nothing's really happening. It's kind of a, a steady image. And that's a bit like looking into the future and looking into the past. But when you look out the side of your window and just look out there for a little while, don't do this if you're driving. If you look out the side of the window, what you see is things going past so quickly they're in a blur. So quickly it's a blur. And when we live our lives constantly referring to the past and the future, looking back and creating an image of fixity in the way we relate to past, looking into the future and again creating an image of fixity, solidity, it gives this illusion of things that do not change. And yet when we look, and we're invited to, we look at what's happening right now. What we start to see is it's changing, and it's changing, and it's changing. And the only thing that doesn't change, it seems, is the fact that things keep changing. Now that may not be the only thing that doesn't change, but at least in our immediate experience of what we can contact directly, everything changes, it seems, as we examine it. There's a there's a uh, say a stanza from the Diamond Sutra, one of the teachings of the uh, early northern schools of Buddhism, and it says something pretty much like this: Thus, you should look upon this fleeting world, a drop of dew, a bubble in a stream a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And those words, I think, conjure up for us a sense of the evanescence, the transience, the almost slippery ungraspableness of the bubbles of experience that keep flickering through consciousness. Which when we're really connected, when we presently start to sense, it's it's moving that quickly. And we see that in that it doesn't make sense to try and hold on to it. We're invited by the teaching, by the understanding, by the recognition in our own experience, the recognition of change. We are invited to let go our grip on life. And as I think rather beautifully illustrated by the poem written by William Blake. He or she, he who binds himself to a joy, does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies, lives on in eternity sunrise. It seems to try to bind ourselves to something, even beautiful, joyful, destroys it but allowing ourselves to touch it. So we're not avoiding that which is joyful or beautiful or sweet, but allowing ourselves to touch it and yet not bind ourselves to it. This is actually a gateway to what Blake refers to as eternity sunrise. The light that rises eternal. 
The second misperception that the Buddha spoke of again and again was the perception we have in which we perceive that which is not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction as being able to do so. The fact that all experience is changing and that experience for the most part, as we see it really clearly on our retreat, is not really in our control. We can't make it happen according to our wishes and plans. And even when we can, it doesn't stay that way very long. The fact that things are changing and moving and uncontrollable means that although they may touch us, they may nourish us, they may be sweet for us, they cannot and no thing in itself no thing in itself can do it for us. Be the final answer, that which gives us what we've been looking for in our life in such a way that it stays and we can kind of go home and retire. And we see this because we spend our life constantly looking for something and each thing holds out that promise. And yet when we get there we find it's an empty promise. And yet we keep doing it. I mean, it's helpful to have some humour and how we relate to our minds with this. Because we keep doing it. And again, a story, one of my favourites, is uh, tells the tale of Mullah Nasruddin, who's a Sufi teaching figure, and uh, a wise man, but also something of a fool. So one suspects his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And one day, Nasruddin was sitting in the, uh, in the village square on market day, with a large pile of red-hot chilies beside him. He's picking them up one at a time and eating them. His face was bright red, his eyes were streaming, his nose was running. He was obviously in quite a degree of distress. And a couple of his friends came up and said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? He said, I'm eating these chilies. Picked up another one and ate it. And his whole body shook with the, the heat and the, the burn of this red hot chili. And, and, and his eyes were just gushing. And he said, we well, see that, Mullah, but why are you eating those chilies? Nazarin replies, he says with a smile, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> Aren't we a little bit like that? It's like we see that the things we contact, that we experience, don't do it for us. Or they would have done it by now. They really would have, wouldn't they? We've been trying hard enough. But they haven't. And yet somehow we keep believing that, oh, it wasn't quite this one. Maybe it's that one. Maybe it's that one. And we keep moving that illusion from one thing to another without questioning the illusion or the misunderstanding that something could do it for me. Things cannot do it for us. And again, what we see in that is that, that movement towards to take hold of or to control or to configure our experience or our life or ourselves according to a certain plan that will be more comfortable, more flattering, more liked by our friends or feared by our enemies or whatever it might be that we're trying to reorganize. That that whole process never ends. And seeing that, Again, the importance of seeing that is that we start to actually not invest so much in taking hold of things because we take hold of them hoping that they'll do it for us. That's why we take hold of them in some way or form. 
in the inferno, Dante, his uh, image of hell, I guess, there's uh, a doorway where one goes in. And it says above the doorway, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Now, it doesn't sound good, does it? Now, imagine over the door to the meditation hall there'd be a sign. <laughs> Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And yet, there's a certain wisdom in that. If you're going to survive in a really difficult place, like hell presumably is, um, one of the things you're going to need to do is stop looking for out there to do it for you. And so here we, again, we turn towards what is here. Not because it's going to do it for us, but because in understanding that it can't, because that the experiences can't do it for us, we see them. We see their nature more clearly. We start to release that investment and that hope. And that begins to open up new possibilities. The third misperception, perhaps the, the deepest and the hardest to really penetrate for us often. The third misperception the Buddha spoke about again and again was the misperception that we, or in fact anything, but that we have an independent existence separate from and apart from other things. And the view that we or anything has a separate independent existence apart from other things, the way of relating to things in that way is a misperception. To see things as having what is sometimes called as independent self-existence when they do not. All experiences, all things, ourselves, others, the world, arise due to conditions, are influenced by, are impacted by, are touched and affected and moved and changed constantly by an interplay of factors, of conditions, of things. We see how we are touched, how we are impacted. We see how we could be feeling actually quite happy. We feel like our meditation is going well, life is buoyant, the, the grounds are beautiful and then someone looks at us as though they don't like us. And immediately we feel Oh, horrible, yuck. Mm. We don't notice that that's happened. But we've just been touched by something. Now, maybe they actually weren't looking at us at all. They were just feeling a bit miserable. But somehow we're affected. And who we experience ourselves to be changes. And this, these ways we see ourselves very much affected by the world. But of course it goes beyond that. We are not separate from. We are constantly being affected by everything around us, the air that we breathe, the temperature of the planet without which we couldn't survive, if it wasn't just about right for us. So many things we are dependent upon, food, companionship of things often for us, we need that, if not from others at least, from ourselves. And in this process of existence, all things are constantly interacting in such a way that, in truth, they cannot really be separated. And yet we tend to think and relate that 
We are separate from, apart from, independent, set in some way removed from the rest of life, from others. And this this misperception really lies at the the core and the heart of so much of our suffering, of so much of our struggle. So, we are invited in practice in examining our experience to question a little bit, to ask ourselves, well, what is this that we think of as me? What is this that we think of as somehow over here? Self, me. And what is that that we think of as other, you, and everything else? What is that? When we actually look inwards, what we see this body, this mind. It's what we experience. Sounds and sights and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts which mix together, flow together. And this is what we actually experience. These phenomena revealed in consciousness, known in awareness. And that's what's happening. See how they're changing. We've noticed how they change through these days. Sometimes minute by minute or even moment by moment we see how quickly it changes. And it's not in our control. We've got that one, hopefully. It's not in our control. It's got, it seems its own life. Sometimes it seems like it has its own intelligence, but sometimes it seems remarkably lacking in it. And yet it clearly doesn't just do what we want. So this process of life, of thoughts, of feelings, of sights and sounds and smells and tastes that we can that can be known, that can be apprehended. We feel somehow within that that there's something of me who owns it or to whom it refers, who is the possessor of this, the owner of this, and yet all those things, where, how solid are they in themselves? Our body seems kind of solid right now. From a certain perspective it is. And sometimes we can experience it as quite insubstantial. But where is the body that you had when you were ten? Where'd it go? And where is the body you will have in ten years' time? If you're still alive. We're still alive. Pretty much all the material in this body will be gone. Possibly a few parts of the bones, in terms of the sort of the, the non-live structures of the bone, and a few of the neurons, the, the brain cells, will still be here. In ten years' time, all of this will be gone, and something else will be here, but not the same as what is here now. And where are the thoughts that you had when you were a teenager? or at primary school, junior school, I don't know what you call it here. Where are the thoughts that you had yesterday? Where are the thoughts you will have tomorrow? Sorry, you will have some tomorrow. They will come back if they seem to have slowed down. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) Where are the thoughts you will have in 20 years? There'll be quite a few of them between now and then, probably, on current performance. They don't, they're not anywhere. 
There's not anything solid in that sense of this ownership of something, because there isn't something really there to own. And the Buddha said we should ask ourselves, we should consider really carefully, if something is changing and uncontrollable, if experiences in themselves do not, and are not able to give us satisfaction, lasting, durable, permanent satisfaction, is it helpful, is it useful to take that to be what we are? Does it lead to happiness and well-being? And the answer is quite simply no, it doesn't. And at some level we begin to sense and realize this. Perhaps quite clearly and strongly. When we examine our sense of self, what is there that we think of as who we are? We see there are certain ideas and beliefs, ways we describe ourselves, ways we talk about our self-image, or we imagine other people see us, certain roles that we function in, meditator, you know, a practitioner, student, teacher, to roles, likewise, um, parent, child, brother, sister, lover, spouse, employee, all the roles we have that kind of make up our life. We see them as things that we are. We think of our history and our future as being so much what we are, that sense of what happened to me and what will happen to me. And we think of our preferences, what we like, what we prefer, how we how we wish things to be, what we like to be in contact with or not to be in contact with. We maybe think of our habits, things that are familiar, regular, routine, predictable about us. The kinds of qualities we notice within us, both the qualities we might appreciate, kindness, generosity, friendliness, and qualities we might not appreciate. You know, greediness, stinginess, jealousy, angry, sort of fear, whatever, different things. And yet all of that somehow creates a composite picture. So when we don't ever stop and look at it, creates or gives a sense of this is who I am, this is me. And somehow within this construction of me, I have to get to happiness, to satisfaction, to peace, to freedom. And we have the sense that this me is over here. Because over there is someone else and they look different and they act different and they seem to have different thoughts and well, some different thoughts, actually. I've been on a retreat for a little while, we start to realize most of us are having quite similar thoughts. But, no, they, they vary according to subtle detail, usually. <laughs> the basic sort of flow isn't that different. And the sense of me, isolated from the world, over here. What if we were to examine that? What's it like? I mean, how do we come to it? So the thought that comes into our mind that says, this is me, those feelings those preferences, those hopes, that history, that future. This is me. I'm it, or I've got it, or I own it. I mean, it's just a thought. Have you noticed something about thoughts since you got here? That they don't always tell us reliably the way things are. They don't always point out the actual truth of things. Thinking is an unreliable medium for discerning truth. Really unreliable. It has its place, actually. Sometimes it's remarkable. It can also be a vehicle for expressing and communicating both the profound and the beautiful. But left to its own devices, it doesn't always go in that direction. 
And so I thought, this is me. I am all of this. And all of this is over here, separate from everything else. What if you were to question that thought? It's not so immediately apparent how we see through that, as perhaps it is in regard to change and impermanence. And yet we might also just have a sense of what that is. If we start to feel, start to feel the process, the movement, the flow of our life, that its fluidity itself speaks to us of something that isn't fixed and isn't separate. If you look how it's flowing, see that movement. I mean, that the fact that it is moving the way it does is kind of really key in this. It's like the Buddha spoke about the truth of change, of impermanence, as being the Buddha's being the elephant's footprint because the elephant's footprint is the footprint which encompasses all footprints bigger than them and that change it's like we, if we were to look at a river and think you know, this is a, something separate from all of the water in the world that's kind of not the truth is it if we look at a river and think and reflect about it we see the river flows into the sea or the ocean the water evaporates from the ocean into the sky, falls as rain onto the land, runs into the river. And the river is not separate from any of the water, or for that matter, the land. But we look at it and think, oh, separate. In the same way we look at ourselves. And that, that perception is very compelling to us, very strong, because we feel somehow safe, paradoxically, because we're also imprisoned but we somehow gain a sense of safety or security from placing ourselves over here and looking out through our experience at everything else and saying, I'm in here, that's over there. But there's also something profoundly painful about being cut off, about being separate, about being divided from life. And of course it's not just everything out there that we put out there, but sometimes it's parts of what we find in here we find ourselves also cut off from, making ourselves separate, divided, disconnected from. And it really invites or requires it's not something we can do but something we can be open to the possibility of. It really requires or invites a, a profound shift in our perspective. And there's another story I'd like to share. I think speaks of a the possibility of a different perspective. And this, this uh, story is told of an old uh, Chinese hermit and meditation master who lived high in the hills in China in the uh, Middle Ages. And every week he would wander down from his little hut and uh, go begging amongst the villages and the, uh, the valley below. And having gathered up such offerings as they were willing to and happy to give him to support his practice because they respected this old hermit they realised he was a, a sincere and devoted man not just a sort of a sort of a, a beggar or of something that they might not have been so happy to see in their village just out of respect for spiritual practice in those parts of the world he would go back up to his hut and he would practice intensely meditation and other spiritual endeavours and it came to be that there was a uh, delegation from the, the, the town council, the Confucian council of the uh, 
the, the, the capital of the region. It was doing a uh, just a bit of a, a tour around the local area to visit all the things, make sure everything was in order. I sort of like things to be kind of quite up in the, the straight and narrow is the phrase. Sort of a, a Confucian philosophy of order and organisation and not much enthusiasm for chaos or randomness. And so um, they heard about this old man. I thought, oh, that doesn't sound too good. We, you know, people are supposed to work growing rice. We can't have people wandering around begging, sort of taking the, the food from these villages and not adding anything of benefit to our to our um, society. So they asked for directions and walked up the hill to the, uh, the hut. And the leader of the delegation knocked on the door. No response. So louder. Still no response. Turned the handle, threw the door open, stepped in. And there, in the middle of the hut, was the old man with his long white beard, sitting cross-legged in meditation, with absolutely no clothes. The leader of the delegation was taken aback. He said, What's going on here? No response. Just looked at him. What's going on here? I demand to know what's happening. I want to know, why are you sitting in your hut with no pants on? The old man looked at him and said, So you think that's what's happening, do you? Well, from where I'm sitting, this whole world is my hut. This hut is my pants. And I want to know, what are you doing in my pants? Perhaps he just prefers the loose of <laughs> But that shift of perspective again. It's like there's the ordinary and the familiar. You know, has its value. And yet, what if we actually were willing to not hold that one so tightly? We experience a sense of ownership of our experience, of our life, of our body, of our mind, of all those things that we call me and mine. So, so strong, so tight. But what if we just left open some space to not be quite so sure of that? It doesn't mean that we have to somehow convince ourselves that this is not me. It's not like we you know, look at our body and our thoughts and our emotions, our past, our present, our future and say, that's not me. Or it's not like we have to say, I don't have a self, and just get into a sort of a Buddhist sort of philosophical position. Well, I used to have a self, but now I'm a Buddhist, I don't have a self. You know, I'm not quite sure what happened to the self I used to have, but anyway, I'm a good Buddhist, so I haven't got one. (laughs) That's really going to get us anywhere. And likewise, taking a position where we are pushing away our experience, trying to say, that's not me, that's not me, doesn't help us either. No more than saying, that is me, that is me. Because it's really just the same process. One is pushing away, one is grasping hold of. And we've seen in our experience that both pushing away and grasping hold of leads to suffering. Leads to coming into conflict with the way things are. So what if we were actually willing to look at our experience without taking a position on it? To look at it and say, well, okay, sounds, thought, feeling, emotions. Action. A thought that says, this is me. A thought that says, I'm not sure if it's me. All of that. And just leave open a space for possibility, for perhaps we could say uncertainty about what this is to be here. 
And in doing so, invite ourselves to enter a realm of openness, a dimension of something that we cannot apprehend when we are holding on to our view of what is or what is not, that I am or I am not. To enter, to be invited, inviting ourselves, inviting our life, our being, to enter that openness is perhaps initially rather scary, a little uncomfortable, unfamiliar to us. There might be moments for us when we actually find that sense of a solidity of referring everything to a center of me just doesn't quite be. We're just with a breath, and it's just a breath, and it's just breath being breathed we see a dewdrop and we just touched by the beauty of the dewdrop and it's just like in that moment of seeing the beauty and the simple and yet miraculous revelation of that experience that just something drops away and we're not me looking at a dewdrop it's just just the knowing of this experience that's happening and then in the next moment we might think oh that was nice I had a nice experience but in that moment we weren't there in the way we used to be and these moments aren't so far away from us. They're not so unusual. But often what happens is we realize with a start, oh, I don't know where I am. And we kind of react with fear. We somehow try and grab hold of and we become the one who had this experience where I wasn't there. It was really great. I really wasn't there. And I had that experience. And we realize that as soon as we've grabbed it, we're back in the center. And the experience is gone that sense of touching something else is gone. To enter that territory that is unfamiliar and undefinable, we have to be willing to, to face the fear that we experience of stepping off the solidity of our conceptions and our perceptions into an unknowing space. And it's a little bit like as a, one of my teachers and a, a friend and someone who uh, much loved him, I think. Many of you will know Joseph Goldstein, or know of him. He's a, hmm, one of the, the real elders of our tradition. And uh, he had this beautiful image which I, I'd like to share with you. Of, of this process of stepping into the unknown. He says it's a bit like you're in a plane, you might like to imagine that. You're going for, put your parachute on. You're in the plane, you're flying. And he says, you jump out of the plane. And as you jump, you realize you've left your parachute behind. Mm-hmm. And he goes, <gasps> You don't go, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> It's like that moment of, no parachute. And then, you realize there's no ground. What happens in that moment? You realize there's no ground. As a um, birthday card I was once given by the staff at the meditation center, actually, I met with Joseph's birthday, and said, uh, could you tell the difference between falling and flying if there was no ground? And there's something of that kind of entering into empty, unknown territory 
where we have to take the risk, where we have to be willing just to go a little further, to rest in that space where it's not so solid, so fixed, so sure, to trust that even if there's a wave of discomfort or fear, that that will pass as all things do. And that as it does, where we're left is in a simple quality of being. To not presume to know what this is, to not presume that we need to figure out who I am or what we are not in all that, but to actually just enter our life with that quality of innocence and openness, even just for a moment. We may we may sense, we may feel the the, the vibration of a of a dimension of, of being in which we are not limited or defined by our experience. Where we're not defined by what's going on around us, controlled by it, or fixed by it. Where we're not actually defined by what is going on within us, or controlled by it, or fixed by it, or located either within or without. But when we actually feel, sense that we are actually in territory that doesn't have ground that there is nothing that we're going to have by falling we actually realize that we can let go into this we can let go into our life we're not depending on what happens for our happiness we're not giving what happens the power to take happiness away from us. We don't really have to build up our ego into something better. We can work on developing good, wholesome qualities, of course, wonderful and important. We don't have to destroy it and get rid of it because it's a problem and we've got to fix it or you know, off of its head. It's just like this is life. Life is here. The vastness of life. May our practice and the presence of life itself deepen our seeing of the way things are and lead us ever more fully into life's embrace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.